I would invite you at this time to uh, turn, if you desire, to Psalm 110. Um, Our text is is simply verse 4. I'm going to recite verse 1 and verse 4. Just to let you know, this is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. And it's one that points to the Lord Jesus. Uh, John Schimmel, sorry to you, but my back row can't hear me very well. So, and it could be the miking rather than any other reason. All right, so maybe up just a little bit. Uh, Back to Psalm 110. Um, It's cited the most in the New Testament, and it's one that Jesus used to confound his uh, Pharisees in terms of being opponents. Uh, But it's verse 4 in particular that is the Uh, the theme and focal point of our message today. So Psalm 110, verse 1, David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And then in verse 4, David continues to write, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, You are a priest for... The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, this morning we uh, come to Scripture knowing that we need to depend upon your Holy Spirit uh, to be the one to guide us into the words which, O Holy Spirit, you first inspired your prophets and apostles to write. And therefore we would pray for a great illumination of our minds and hearts to understand your truth. And in understanding your truth, to find our hearts desiring to know it, to understand it, and to live it. And then you would work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. We would desire our great God uh, to be as Jesus called his disciples to be salt and light in this generation. We would pray this so that uh, through our lives being, as it were, light and salt, salt and light. Uh, The name of Jesus will be properly presented. Those who don't know you might come to know you. Your great commission would be ever increasingly fulfilled. And truly, the promise to Abraham would be realized that in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That seed even Jesus. Amen. So even as we called your attention to the hymns that we uh, are singing today, I want to uh, simply give you again uh, some of that information, some of those hymns in terms of uh, several that I have printed, just stanzas in front of me. I want you to think about this one. This goes back to a Latin hymn in the 6th century. So way back in the 500s, Uh, some unknown uh, early church guy uh, wrote these words in Latin, later translated into English. At the Lamb's high feast we sing praise to our victorious king who has washed us in the tide flowing from his pierced side. Praise we him whose love divine gives his sacred blood for wine, gives his body for the feast, 
Christ the victim, Christ the priest, celebrating the priestly ministry of Christ. Then Isaac Watts, one of the, the greatest of all the hymn writers, has written these words, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. Later in the uh, 18th century, we have the great hymn writer Charles Wesley, John Wesley's brother. And uh, Charles has written these words. We've sung them. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming blood, or love, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. And then we'll conclude this morning with Vicki Cook's song, which is a late 20th century, and really it is a hymn rather than just a song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Now, in bringing this to our minds this morning, I want us to understand that it's a common recognition by the hymn writers from the early church into the modern age, into current contemporary times, that what is, what is so significant about Jesus Christ, what is essential to our salvation, is that Jesus fulfills the office and calling of a priest, uh, both in terms of the priest who offers the sacrifice and also in being the sacrifice that is offered. It's not too much to say that the New Testament would have us look to the history of redemption to look back to what God was doing after the Exodus, to look back to the establishment of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices, all of it's to declare to us that we find in here the, the great themes of redemption, the great themes that Jesus Christ himself fulfills. We saw last week that Jesus is the tabernacle. Today, Jesus is not just the high priest, but the great high priest in the next week that Jesus is the sacrifice. The vital question for us as believers would be something like this. What does it mean for you and I to live our lives as Christians in light of the fact that Jesus is the great high priest? What's the significance of that on a day-by-day basis? To come to that, to understand the answer to that question, uh, we need to see this idea, this theme developed. That because Jesus Christ is the great high priest who has offered himself as the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice, he is able to save to the very uttermost all of those who draw near to God through him because he ever lives above for them to intercede. Jesus Christ, a great high priest, offers himself once for all time the all-sufficient sacrifice. But not only does he do that great work upon the cross, but even now at the Father's right hand, he ever lives and he ever makes intercession for us. And that intercession, grounded in what he did upon the cross, is that which 
brings a continual supply of grace, a continual supply of pardon, a continual supply of forgiveness for sins that will always have us absolutely and completely secure in our salvation before God. Now, to to think this through, we need to look at the tabernacle, the priesthood of the tabernacle, and then we need to look also at the priesthood of Melchizedek and then see how those things relate to the priesthood of Christ. Now, the priesthood of the tabernacle that we find in the Old Testament comes in the context of some background that we need to appreciate first. We, we emphasized this strongly last week when we talked about the, the coming of the tabernacle, uh, this, this new thing that happens after the Exodus. So the Old Testament story is basically this. When God first created human, the human race as image bearers, where did they live? They lived in God's garden in Eden. And God's garden had the very significance, as we find through reading lots of places in the Old Testament and chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, the significance of the garden and the garden of Eden was it was the dwelling place of God. And when God first created the human race, God dwelt with them, they dwelt with him. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They were expelled from the garden. Well, what's the significance of that? When you are a sinful human being and God is a holy, holy God, you can't dwell in his presence. And so the first humans, even though an atonement is made for their sin at that point, they are cast out of the garden and away from Eden. So the history of the human race in terms of the fallen condition of the human race is a history in which uh, human beings are living but they're not dwelling with God, and God isn't dwelling with them. We see this from Adam uh, all the way through the time of Abraham. Uh, God comes to visit. God comes to be for a short while with his people, but God does not stay and God doesn't dwell with his people. That's all the way it is. In fact, the covenant that God uh, presents in Genesis uh, 15 and Genesis 17, he makes the promise, I will be a God to you and to your children. I'll be a God to you and to your descendants. But nothing is said in the original establishment of the covenant that God is going to dwell with his people. That's the great new truth and revelation that comes with the Exodus. Why? Because the Exodus is the preeminent thing in the Old Testament that symbolizes redemption. It is when God has redeemed his people and brings them out of Egypt, bondage to slavery, symbolic of the bondage to sin, and redeems them, the Passover lamb. He then declares to his people that he wants them to build a sanctuary so that he can dwell in their midst. So now the covenant promise becomes, I will be a God to you and to your children, and I will walk among you and be with you as your God. I will dwell among you as your God. But how? Uh, Nothing has changed in terms of human nature. Adam and Eve were expelled because of their sinfulness. God didn't dwell with anyone between Adam and the Exodus because of that sinfulness. What's going on here? The new dimension. 
in terms of God dwelling with his people comes in the context of the revelation of redemption. The tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices is a tremendously significant and symbolic representation of how sinful human beings are now brought into the presence of God so that God can himself be brought near to them to dwell with them. And so in this system, tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifices, we begin by looking at the priestly nature of those who were assigned to the tabernacle. Now, that's vast. The subject is, is incredibly dense and vast. It has lots of intricate details. Uh, the latter part of the book of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, all of this is, is... So we don't have time to look at every one of those particulars. I'm going to have to summarize. But here I'm taking my cue from the book of Hebrews because the writer of the book of Hebrews summarizes. He summarizes all of the priestly... Uh, nature of the tabernacle priest really in a relatively short order of things. So following that biblical precedent, we'll talk about the priesthood and what are the significant points. We need to understand that the priesthood is, first of all, set apart by God. There's a special being set apart. There's also a special clothing connected to that that's symbolic. And then there are specific functions. Now, in terms of this special calling being set apart by God, not anyone could be a priest, and no one could choose to be a priest on his own. God specifically selected, out of the tribe of the Levites, the family of Aaron. Just the sons of Aaron were going to be set apart and consecrated and ordained to be priests. And within the sons of Aaron, it was going to be the, not the firstborn, but the first son that still remains living, the oldest son, who's going to be the successor to the high priest. Uh, because it could be that the firstborn son's going to die, which does happen in the story of Exodus. Uh, so it's really the oldest son who's going to be following uh, his father in terms of being the high priest. Now, all the priests share the same kind of function. That function is mediation. I mean, this is true throughout the pagan world as well. All the pagan priests were mediators between God and man and man and God. But their mediation was, was all based upon false ideas of God and false ideas why there needs to be mediation between God and man, which makes what God declares to Israel all the more significant. It's not some kind of superstition that requires mediation. It's not some kind of magic that requires mediation. What requires mediation is the reality of sin. None of all the other priesthood outside of Israel ever addressed the problem of sin. The reason why there needs to be a go-between between human beings and God is because God is a holy God. God is a moral God. God is a pure God. And human beings have broken his covenant, violated his law, and come before him as those who are no longer like Adam and Eve as they were originally created. So, priesthood involves mediation. That's the first thing to know. And they're consecrated to this mediation 
in a twofold way, and this is significant. They're consecrated by a washing with water and by an anointing with oil. Uh, this was to signify that they were going to be set apart. Uh, this oil, the formula of the oil, was so important that God said to Israel, you must not compose this oil for any other purpose than for anointing the priest. And anyone who, un who uses this oil to anoint someone who's not a priest is going to get cut off. Anyone who uh, happens to use this formula wrongly is going to be cut off. It was a special oil designed only for the priest of Aaron. Now, the parallel to Christ is that at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, something highly symbolic happens to him involving water and anointing. Uh, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. There's the parallel to the water. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Now, why is the descent of the Holy Spirit symbolic of the oil? Because that's how the Old Testament came to understand the anointing oil. It was a special endowment of the Spirit of God for the calling that the person is set aside to. There were only three kinds of individuals who were anointed with oil in this way. Prophets, priests, and kings. And interesting enough, in the history of redemption, those three could at times be called an anointed one. And the word anointed, an anointed one in the Old Testament is the word Mashiach, in English, Messiah. And so we recognize that in the offices of prophet, priest, and king, these who were anointed with this special oil, there was a symbolic prediction of the one who would preeminently be the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah of Israel fulfilled in Jesus. Now, back to the priesthood. Um, what was the role of the priesthood? Well, they're commanded to offer sacrifices. And the sacrifices are to be done on a daily basis, but preeminently there's one sacrifice that is incredibly significant on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. On that particular day, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and there offer sacrifices pertaining to the mercy seat, which was over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the significance of all of that, because there was that sacrifice and a second act that the high priest would do with respect to the Holy of Holies on that particular day that we'll discuss next week. But what's significant here is that a regular priest could not go into the Holy of Holies. And even the high priest could not go into the Holy of Holies, except on one particular day, after going through special processes of sacrifice and sanctification to enable him to come there. But that particular sacrifice was considered the most preeminent sacrifice of all the sacrifices of Israel. Uh, this was not only for all the known sins that people may have confessed and sacrificed for, but it's particularly for those unknown sins that people might commit. 
their sins of ignorance. So it, it really spoke to the complete and sufficient sacrifice for sin. Not only what you're aware of, but even sins that you are not aware of would be atoned for on this particular day. But how was the high priest dressed? He was given special clothing. And it tells us in, in Exodus that this clothing, Exodus 28.2, holy garments for Aaron for glory and for beauty. The clothing that the high priest wore was to signify, to represent something acceptable to God, that which is beautiful, that which is glorious, symbolic of perfection. The high priest could come into the Holy of Holies dressed in that which represented perfection. Ultimately, of course, fulfilled in the very perfection of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. The high priest could not go into the Holy of Holies in his own clothing. It had to be clothing designed by God and given to him by God. He had to be clothed in this kind of a vestment in order to come in. Further, he had a special breastplate. Uh, your translation may say breast piece, but the older translation, breastplate. On it were 12 stones, uh, three rows of four stones each. Each one of the stones had engraved upon it a name of a tribe of Israel. And the symbolism of this is when he would go into the Holy of Holies, there before the mercy seat, to sprinkle the blood... He was representing all the people of Israel, all of God's people, represented by the high priest at the throne of grace. Now, here's what we need to understand. All of that speaks of mediation. An ordinary Israelite could not go into the tabernacle, even the holy place, and especially, even the regular priest could not go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And not even the high priest could go in there except once a year. The lesson is mediation. Mediation, absolutely necessary for sinful human beings to even come into the presence of God because God is holy. But God has provided that mediation. Now, the truth... The truth is this, and it needs to be a truth deeply embedded in our hearts. God has not changed. No one comes to God except through mediation. No one comes to God except through a high priest. No one can come to God directly. Even today, at this moment, we need a high priest. In fact, you need to understand that even for all eternity, you need a high priest who is your mediator. Now, we come to the priesthood of Melchizedek. What is interesting is that the name Melchizedek, which we find in the New Testament is so incredibly significant, shows up only twice in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 14, time of Abraham. And then in Psalm 110, only two references to Melchizedek in all of the Old Testament. So in, 
in Genesis chapter 14, we read that Abraham, the father of the faithful, uh, the one to whom God made that covenant, I'll be God to you and to your descendants afterward you. Abraham meets Melchizedek after a, a season of warfare in which he rescues his nephew Lot from a number of kings that had taken him and the other inhabitants of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah captive. So he rescues Lot, he comes, and, and Melchizedek comes out to meet him. We read in Genesis 14, 18 to 20, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So that's the first reference to Melchizedek. Silence for almost a thousand years until under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, David writes this psalm, Psalm 110, where verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is to say, as we know from the New Testament, the Lord says to David's Lord, David's Lord is the Messiah, the Lord says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then in verse 4, you, you, the Messiah, you, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the King of the ages, the Messiah, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. A thousand more years of silence as to what this all means until we come to the time of the New Testament. So we have in Psalm 110, God speaking through David, God giving a messianic psalm, God saying that the Messiah is also going to be a priest. And not only that, he's going to be a priest eternally. You are a priest forever. Not only that, but this priesthood is not going to be according to the law. It's going to be by a direct oath of God. The Lord has sworn and will never change his mind. You are a priest forever. So we come to the New Testament, chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, and we read this further information and interpretation of who Melchizedek is and what this means. Verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So he, Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek. Melchi meaning king. Zedek meaning righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, which is the word shalom, which is peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. The book of Genesis says nothing about father or mother or genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, there's no time when Melchizedek was born, there's no statement of when he died. 
but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So that's how the writer of Hebrews is inspired by God to tell us who Melchizedek is and what the Melchizedek priesthood is all about. The big claim, though, that the writer is making is this. The priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. It shows up in the name Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Of the Aaronic priests, the priests who were sons of Aaron, none of them was ever to be a king. Melchizedek is a king who is also a priest. But further, he's also the king of peace. In him, peace is to reign. And then he's priest of God Most High. Further, the claim is made, Hebrews 7, 6, but this man who does not have his descent from them, meaning the Levites, he's not descended from the Levites, receives tithes from Abraham and blesses him who had the promises. And then the writer says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The writer to Hebrews says, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So, let's restate the significance of Melchizedek from what we've read. The promised Messiah, who sits at God's right hand, is declared by oath from God that he's going to be a priest forever and that his priesthood is going to be superior to that of the priesthood of the tabernacle. So we can reason this way, that in everything that is great in the office of the tabernacle high priest, everything that's great there is going to find a greater reality in the one who is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Everything great that's represented and symbolized in the priest of Aaron and the high priest particularly, there is going to be a greater reality, a greater significance and to the one who is the Messiah who comes according to the order of Melchizedek. And that brings us then to the priesthood of Christ. The New Testament presents three necessary parts to his priestly ministry. He has to be a mediator. He must offer sacrifice. He must make intercession. So, six important truths in light of these three things necessary for Jesus' role and calling as the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. First, there's no other mediator but Christ. No other mediator. Paul says in 1 Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony born at the proper time. Paul claims... Christ, Christ alone is the only mediator. And that this mediator offered himself as a fully sufficient sacrifice. No other mediator exists. No other sacrifices are ever needed. Jesus, the only mediator, his sacrifice, the only needed ransom with respect to our sin. The second truth. 
it's the great and grand theme of the book of Hebrews that Christ is not only the priest, but he's the exalted great high priest. So Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. What Paul says about being the only mediator and sacrifice, the writer is saying, yes, look to Jesus. He is the high priest of our confession. Third great truth. Christ is the high priest. The way the Messiah was going to be the high priest. A king who's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110, again, verse 1, which says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The kingly office of the Messiah. But then in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ is a great high priest who functions as both king and priest simultaneously. Fourth important truth. As the high priest, Christ has offered the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The emphasis, one sacrifice at one time, sufficient for all time. And that's the emphasis of Hebrews 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Stop for a moment. Think about the significance of this. A sacrifice sufficient for all time means a moment ago when you sinned, his sacrifice was sufficient to cover that sin. The great power of the devil is to keep us thinking that what Jesus done on the cross is less than what God has declared it to be. So, when you sin, you wonder and doubt, has God really covered this sin? Is this sin truly forgiven? Am I still acceptable to a holy God? When you sin, you need this truth at that moment more than any other truth. You need to know at that moment 
the sufficiency of what Jesus did once for all time. You need to know that. Because that which will draw you back in repentance is not your feelings of guilt. That which will draw you back in repentance is a humble awe at the power of the mercies of God to forgive you in your very worst moments and in your very worst behavior and in your very worst frame of mind to know that at that moment God has never loved you more than at that moment because that's the reason for why Jesus shed his blood. Your feelings of guilt will never, ever save you. Your feelings of guilt will never reconcile you to God. Your feelings of guilt will never help you live the righteous life that God desires. Your feelings of guilt will only destroy you. What you must have at the moment of your most desperate understanding of your sinfulness and how you must in your own flesh be abhorrent to God is to realize The God who abhors your sin and who would abhor you in your flesh has also provided for you in the mercy seat of His Son everything fully sufficient to cover every one of your sins to the very depth of your awful, filthy soul. He has covered your sin. And the moment that you understand how awful you are is the very moment you should be praising a God who has loved you with an everlasting love, with an all-sufficient sacrifice of His Son, that Jesus, as the high priest, so willingly has given. This you need to know. Your life will never change if you're not grounded in an understanding that Jesus paid it all. You owe everything to what Jesus did for you. And he did it because he loves you. Because he cares for you so deeply. And then... How do you know this is always the case? The sixth great truth. The priestly intercession of Jesus is our confidence to come to Christ at all times in our time of need. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. We are told that since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring, the seed of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. First, Jesus is sympathetic to you. 
He's sympathetic to your worst moments on your worst days and your worst attitudes. He's sympathetic. Without sin, he's felt the power of temptation, but without sin. You see, no one has ever felt the temptation the strongest except the one who has resisted temptation the most. Do you understand that? Because Jesus has been tempted but never sinned, no one felt the power of temptation more strongly ever in the history of the human race than Jesus did. Because the more he resisted, the more the temptations were pressed upon him by the devil. And Jesus resisted the most challenging temptations that could ever be presented to any human being without sin. That's his sympathy toward you. He knows how powerful sin is to tempt. He is the only one that can help you because he is without sin. But it's not just Hebrews that gives us this great testimony of a sympathetic high priest who's always interceding for us. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, how will he not also, along with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who judges who is there to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing to you so that you would not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate there is one who pleads on behalf of another. Jesus is our great high priest who by the power of his indestructible life ever lives above to plead for us. Now, let's apply these things as we close. First, the big truth. Because Jesus is the great high priest who has offered himself at one time an all-sufficient sacrifice for all of time and for all of our sins, he saves to the uttermost those that he redeems by his blood who draws near to God through him. Why? because he always intercedes for them. So, your salvation, first of all, is secure. If you have truly placed your faith in Christ, if you truly have trusted him and his sacrifice for sin, then God's grace through the gift of faith has saved you. You are redeemed. Your sins are atoned for. You have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of your sins. Second, your great high priest ever lives above for you to intercede. His throne is a throne of grace. His throne is the very mercy seat. Your greatest need 
is when you know you have sinned, your greatest need to know that is the time to run to Christ, to run to the one who is your mediator. You have to know that when you confess your sin to him, he pleads his blood to the Father. He pleads his work on your behalf. What does Jesus have to plead for you? The great work of salvation and redemption. The great sacrifice. The expiation of your sin. The propitiation of God's wrath. The ransoming of you from, from enslavement to sin and reconciliation of sinful human beings to God. Jesus pleads his great work on your behalf. And he never stops. He's always pleading his great work on your behalf. That's why Wesley symbolically represents it this way. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let this ransom sinner die. And then Wesley goes on with his last stanza. What is the great truth of the priestly work of Christ? My God is reconciled. My, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Amen. Our Father, this morning we would just ask that you would help us to know more deeply uh, the precious priestly ministry of your Son and that he ever lives above praying for us. In Christ's name, amen.